Hello and welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Today, we're going to talk about wearable technology and its potential for making journalism. There is a range of tech gadgets that people can wear for a variety of purposes, from making purchases to tracking their fitness. You've probably seen a smartwatch by now, right? We're going to hear from one of the great enthusiasts for smart glasses. Smart glasses allow you to see augmented reality overlays through the lenses, which layer on top of your view of the world when wearing them. They also have built-in cameras to film the world as you see it. This means of filming and creating content is the perfect fit for video-first social media platforms like Snapchat, bursting with young audiences familiar with the weird and wonderful world of filters and internet culture. Yusuf Omar is the co-founder of Scene, formerly Hashtag Our Stories, a media publication which has built a large social following through empowering communities to tell their own stories through this type of technology, smart glasses. By leveraging user-generated content and citizen journalists, they can publish around a thousand videos a year, but they want more. Under this new rebranding, Scene, Yusuf tells me more about how the publication is preparing for a generation of news consumers who, he claims, will not be using search bars or mobile phones to find their news in the future. Plus, he's going to tell us how he plans to make this content pay. All of that's coming up after this. Yusuf, welcome to the Journalism.co.uk podcast. Thanks so much for jumping on the show. I'm really excited. Would you tell our audience a little known fact about yourself? Mm, I hate my phone. Excuse me? You love? <laughs> I thought you loved your phone. I hate it. I hate filming on phones. I hate filming through. I, I hate looking at the world through a mobile device. Uh, I hate looking down. It makes when I'm like kind of doing emails and all that kind of stuff. It hurts my neck and back. Uh, yeah, I, I I hate the interaction that I currently have with the internet. Oh, and and with me right now, I guess by proxy. <laughs> this is a little bit better. This is a little bit better, but it's kind of a necessary evil in this hyperconnected world, isn't it? Yes and no. I mean, as you know, I wear camera glasses on my face every day of my life. And now I'm wearing glasses that have augmented reality on them so I can see things. I can see uh, information overlaid onto the world. That is an internet I like a lot. Now I'm starting to feel like a superhero yeah, our audience won't be able to see this right now, but what I can see right now is tons of like filters and uh, mocked up tattoos on your face. Explain to me what I'm looking at right now. Yeah, so if anybody's on, you know, Snapchat or Instagram stories, they're so used to using augmented reality filters, right? And this is how young people communicate. And, and that's AR, that's augmented reality. And most journalism organizations are like, oh, that's really cute. But it's so much more. We're really interested in, in, in how we can help people tell stories using augmented reality tools. We're really interested in how we can immerse people in stories so they can see the world and see other perspectives using augmented reality tools. Um, the same technology, for example, has enabled us to do a project where in South Africa, you can point your phone at these colonial statues and suddenly they come to life and they start talking to you. And the horse is like, hey, get off me to the racist old uh, general. And they end up having a little argument. And the horse tells you how racist and terrible this uh, prized uh, statue is. Yeah, that's, that's a whole different world of information, depth of understanding. You know, it's, it's, 
when people t talk about filters and things, there seems to be that disconnect as you're talking about there, you know, why should we care about it? Why should we not? Where, where do you see the line between novelty and genuine practicality for journalism? Yeah, so right now the primary input technology is the QWERTY keyboard, right? Whether you're on the laptop or you're probably listening to this on a phone. To get to this, you had to type something into your um, podcasting app of choice or you would have had to click on the journalism.co.uk podcast, but you would have had to use a screen and touch something. And more and more that's moving towards audio, right? You're starting to talk to your device. Maybe you're talking to your Amazon uh, or Alexa device at home. But the next manifestation of that is a camera first input to technology where you start to scan things. And we're already seeing this COVID-19 massively accelerated it. You scan QR codes to pay for things. Um, you know, Google Maps today, you can open it up in London, for example, and you can be navigated not by looking at a map, but actually looking through your camera and seeing directions that are overlaid onto the real city. Over the next eight years, by 2030, the camera is going to be your primary input to technology. It's really going to be how you do everything. It's going to be how you pay for things, how you uh, add friends. Uh, we're going to move away from the keyboard, and that's a great thing. The keyboard is a lot of friction between you and the internet. Like, there's a reason why you can't drive and use your phone because it involves you having to type things and you, you can't concentrate on what you're doing. Uh, the camera is now moving from not just being a way to capture things like your birthday and stuff. It's actually becoming a tool to engage with technology. AR is part of that. It's overlaying the internet onto the real world through your mobile camera. And yes, it starts off being a little bit cute and gimmicky, but that's how a lot of things start off. It starts with the cultural change, right? And like the filters I'm wearing on my face right now. Right now I've got kind of like these fake tattoos on my face and I'm wearing this like colorful braces on my teeth. It's a cultural thing, but eventually it moves to a utility thing where you start to see directions uh, through your mobile camera, where you might point your camera up at the sky and see uh, what the weather's going to look like. So that's how things tend to go. And, and, and you know, when the internet arrived, uh, it certainly wasn't used for what it's used for today. When mobile phones went, were first arrived, they weren't used for what they used for today. Uh, eventually, it's going to go from novelty to absolute mainstream. In fact, by 2025, just to leave you with one more number, about 75% of the world's population are going to be using this kind of AR stuff to inform their consumer purchases, try on shoes and makeup and hats and all that kind of stuff. And we're really coming at this from a journalism point of view. That figure, by the way, does check out. The Snap Consumer AR Global Report 2021, published by Deloitte & Snap, looked at responses from 15,000 consumers in 15 countries. According to the study, three in four people will be avid AR users in the next three years. But what will they be using the technology for? That same study suggests that two thirds of users will use AR primarily at home, mostly for communication, but also for shopping, gaming, entertainment, and crucially, media consumption. It's quite likely that people still have reservations about using wearable technology out in public, but that isn't hindering Yusuf's vision. Scene, launched as hashtag our stories in 2017, aims to empower local communities to tell their own stories by supplying them with and training them to use wearable technology whilst out and about. It's not too dissimilar to previous attempts to use smartphones to democratise filming and media creation. They've kept growing ever since, reaching 1.6 million subscribers on Snapchat, its primary platform. Yusuf tells me more about the fresh plans under the rebrand to Scene. The hashtag our stories brand was very much, again, going back to the text world. You use a hashtag and you search something. 
seen is around two things. One, it's around communities feeling seen, right? There's so many stories that are untold. There's so many stories that are unheard. We know that the traditional media landscape lacks diversity, both especially in the newsrooms. Obviously, newsrooms, take the UK, for example, journalists are often so much more wealthy and educated than the average uh, member of public. Newsrooms are not representative of the audiences that you serve. And that leaves communities feeling unseen. LGBTQI communities, people of color, disability groups are inadequately represented in mainstream media. And for that reason, you miss stories. We don't think, we don't see Brexit coming because we don't listen to communities. We don't think Trump's going to win the elections because we don't listen to communities. So that's really where we're at with the, with the idea of scene. It's, it's about communities feeling seen by empowering them to tell their own stories using these tools that we provide them through the AR camera and having a team of amazing journalists. We've got now 100 people around the world that are fact-checking and verifying and, and producing and making sense of uh, these incredible narratives that we hear. The second idea of uh, scene is that we're really moving towards a, a world where you start to see stories overlaid onto the world. All the investments that we're making are into the AR camera, into immersing you in stories. We just did a project in Boston, for example, in the US, where we've overlaid historical images of the city onto the real world, the women's suffragette movement for one, the first woman to run the Boston Marathon for another, and we've got poets that are giving you uh, the context of what's happened on that location. Uh, but we're just getting warmed up. Uh, you ain't seen nothing yet. Mm. That's that's interesting because a journalist or indeed a newsroom can only cover so much. There's a, there are only one person, and indeed with that, they've also got their own biases. Everyone has maybe a mobile phone in their pocket, or you know the direction you're going with is that it, in eight years everyone will have you know wearable technology. That's what they're missing out on. These are the stories that you know a journalist in the newsroom on their own are just going to miss out on. A hundred percent. The reality is. We can never have a newsroom that is as diverse and interconnected as the populations that we see around the world, especially I mean, where you are in the UK. It's just not possible. The only way to have an inclusive and representative uh, media landscape is to empower people to tell stories themselves. Unfortunately, when we share this idea, and we've done this all over the world, we get ridiculed. And at best and at worst, we get called a threat to democracy. Oh, my God, people with phones, that's the beginning of false information and fake news. But we are the, as journalists, we are the sole arbiters of truth. We're the only ones that can tell you what's happening on the ground. And that's just not true. Like, look at Ukraine today. The, 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 the president of, of Ukraine, Zelensky, is delivering us news with a mobile phone on the ground. And it is just as relevant and it is just as valid as anything else. And yes, communities definitely will have biases. But does that matter? No, it's not this world where you've got user-generated content on one end and journalism on the other. It's the opposite. Journalism needs quality, professional quality user-generated content. And user-generated content needs journalists to help make sure that it's legitimate. How, how difficult is the training aspect, you know, just from maybe a community that's completely unfamiliar with the territory, unfamiliar with the technology, getting them to be, be able to use it? How difficult is that? I don't think it's ever been easier to train people how to tell stories. Nowadays, young people communicate via the camera. They show people where they are and what they're eating via the camera uh, as a way of communicating. They have a great understanding of how to shoot sequences and shots and they're really creative. I can't teach a young person how to do something creative on a mobile phone in terms of shooting. They can teach me a thing or two, right? Because they, they come from this Snapchat generation. They, they're instinctively 
uh, used to uh, the mobile camera. I think where we can add a lot of value is, firstly, people often don't know how to frame or how to tell their story, how to structure their story. They want to talk about something very important, uh, sometimes in regards to their own lives, but they might not necessarily have all the facts in a row. And we're able to preload the journalism up top and provide them with all the information that they need so that they can have an informed discussion about a, a particular topic. Cutaways and B-roll is also something people don't think about very much, right? You might uh, have an important story to tell about uh, how you've got a mental health condition like schizophrenia, but you've got no idea how to visualize that story. And obviously, we can't have a talking head for, for three minutes. You need ways to tell that story that's still visually interesting. People don't know how to make the opening few seconds of their story engaging. They might have something really important to say, but they might lose people right up the top by saying, hey, my name is, and, and by the way, and they've already lost us. So I think there's a lot of work to be done in terms of storyboarding. I think there's a lot of work to be done in terms of the kind of basics of journalism um, and visualization. People don't think visually necessarily. Are you actually going to be providing the technology directly to them? Are you going to be stumping up the cost for that? Yeah, we already do. At no cost, we, we, we provide people with these AR tools. They already have a mobile phone and we shoot them over a custom lens. So for example, if you look at one of our shows called Most Asked, we look at marginalized communities and the most frequently asked questions that they get asked, right? So uh, for example, you've got a woman that's a Muslim woman that's covering her face and, and wearing the niqab. And we look at the most Googled questions. Uh, you know, does wearing a niqab make you a terrorist? Or obviously it doesn't, but that's a question they get asked. It's a question that's Googled. So we're able to position this question uh, on their mobile camera. They can see it and they can respond to it. Could, could you elaborate on that slide in terms of how that actually works? You know, what they point to their camera at, how does that come up? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you're, you're simply able to provide people with a series of, of questions that they're able to answer uh, that are presented to them uh, on their mobile screen. Uh, or maybe I need them to shoot stuff, or maybe I want to actually immerse them in a story. We're doing a show called Our Survivors, which looks at people, for example, gun violence survivors. And they really struggle to tell their story because there's just no visuals that, that, that can depict what happened on the night they got shot. Using their mobile camera and our AR technology, I'm able to put them into a location, obviously in a way that's not triggering and is sensitive, we're able to immerse them in an environment. We're able to give them tools to help them visualize things that are so difficult to visualize. Climate change is another one. We struggle to make climate change stories interesting and visual. We created this amazing augmented reality lens for communities across the African continent where you open your mobile camera and if you're a presenter, for example, this big globe pops up next to you and it's spinning and there's tornadoes on it and there's stories on it and you've got these different chapters that you can click through to. And suddenly somebody sitting in Botswana has got access to a mixed reality studio in their mobile phone. Hey there, just a quick one from me and we'll get back to Yusuf. If you're enjoying this episode, you can come and hear more about Scene live at our first post-pandemic journalism conference, News Rewired, next week. That's taking place on the 24th of May at News UK HQ in London. We'll hear from Scene's other co-founder and editor, Samaya Omar, about creating content for young audiences. And this is your last chance to join us. Head over to newsrewired.com to grab your ticket and we'll see you there. My understanding from, from when we spoke before about scene is that you're also heading in the direction of solutions journalism, kind of solutions journalism meets wearable technology, AR. Can you expand on that as well, please? A hundred percent. For a long time, the old maxim is if it bleeds, it leads. Bloody front pages sold more newspapers. But 
our generation, we want answers. We're not ignoring problems in society for sure. We are massively taking them head on, but we're looking for here's a problem in society and here's somebody making it better. Or here's how we can talk about things in a very constructive way. And that comes through in all of our shows, you know, whether we are looking at, uh, you know, our entrepreneurship show and young people that are taking ownership of their lives and starting small businesses, or even our sex ed show, which is probably our fastest growing show. I think it's only a few months old and it's already got over 700,000 subscribers. And that's like all the sex ed that you should have been taught in school, but you weren't. So sometimes solutions-based storytelling is a very like literal, here's a problem and here's a tangible solution. But sometimes it's about just talking about things in a really constructive way. And to be honest, it's sometimes seen as like fluff, like, oh yeah, that sounds like really soft. It's the opposite. Like, I think it's easy to report on problems. It's easy to be like, oh yeah, this bridge is broken. These, there's potholes in the street. It's way harder to come up with uh, journalism that is looking at solutions for that around the world. Yeah, it's got a very educational quality to it. It's not just kind of, you know, knee-jerk reactions to stories. There's uh, at least a search there for deeper understanding and context. A hundred percent. And that's a really important, we have a checklist of kind of what stories we cover and what we don't. And one of those criteria is that TIL moment, today I learned. You need to have a really clear, today I learned something from watching this piece of content. And, and if we're not teaching people, what are we doing? I think that's why we found such a connect with these you know, 13, 24-year-olds around the world, um, because of the educational nature of our content. Under the rebranding to scene, Yusuf is planning a substantial expansion and recruitment drive, fueled by the successful pandemic period where its international network of contributors could still provide content for the publication. The business model has always been to provide free training to local communities to start filming their own content for the publication, which they in turn produce for free. Financial sustainability for social video journalism in particular has loomed large. It's a labour and cost intensive medium which is not easily compensated through views and advertising alone. The secret to hashtag our stories, now seen of course, is how diversified its revenue streams have become. Beyond the view count, there are plenty of other ways Yusuf and his team are able to make money. And that's what we dive into next. Um, we've been really fortunate. We've grown incredibly fast, right? The pandemic meant that organizations around the world had to decentralize their newsmaking systems. A lot of people ended up using mobile journalism who hadn't considered it before. And we were really well positioned. We were positioned to launch lots of shows. We have this uh, entire system built around empowering communities to tell stories with phones and wearable cameras. Um, that has enabled us to massively scale the amount of shows that we have. We now have 10 shows. We've got, you know, uh, Seen Health, Seen Minds, Seen Money, uh, Seen Africa, Seen India, Seen Sex Ed. Uh, we've got all these different shows, and they're earning advertising revenue on the platforms that we publish on, on Snapchat primarily, but we also earn ad revenue on Facebook. And we also have a bunch of other revenue streams, right? We do incredible branded content experiences. We work with NGOs and mainly organizations that are positively changing the world. We're not going to be selling you a car. And if we do sell a car, it better have recycled tires and, and certainly be electric. But we're looking at branded content experiences with various partners, creating these AR experiences. We did some really cool stuff with World Vision International, for example, for World Refugee Day. You open up your mobile camera and you're in a refugee camp as, a, as, as the user. Uh, you watch pieces of content that are filmed by refugee communities themselves. Uh, so this, this kind of workflow or this journalism uh, system that we've been able to apply for our shows has also been applicable to brands. We've also been able to syndicate and license. We've, we've got a, a TV product that's been on NBC LX in the US. Uh, and finally, I mean, right now I'm speaking to you from Kazakhstan. 
speeches and training and workshops and all that is a very big part of uh, our revenue stream. Uh, well, becoming smaller and smaller part, but we still, you know, really love to do it. And we think it's important to empower communities in 140 countries, 20,000 people. It's a big part of what we believe in. What's the arrangement with the with the training side of things? You know, do they pay to receive training or do they just produce content for free? Or, you know, how does that practically work? Yeah, I mean, for everyone who's appearing in our shows, those are people that are speaking specifically about themselves, right? So they're not acting as journalists, they're acting as citizens that are reporting on their own stories. So they are receiving free training from us, they're receiving free toolkits. Uh, but of course, we're not paying them for their stories. As in any newsroom around the world, we don't pay people for journalistic stories because they're not acting as a reporter. They're talking about their own stories. It would be unethical for us to pay them. Um, in terms of our training relationships, we have a kind of Robin Hood model, I suppose. Uh, we get invited for paid trainings all over the world. I mean, I'm in Kazakhstan today. I head to the UK uh, on Wednesday. Then we're off to Denmark to do another training. Uh, and those are paid for. They're paid for by uh, NGOs. They're paid for by uh, right now in Kazakhstan, the US, we're working with the US embassy to help protect the rights of journalists here. Um, we work with even social media conferences and uh, newsrooms. We've worked with tons of newsrooms around the world. Uh, and then once we get that paid training, we're able to leverage to do community training for free in those communities. So, for example, when we traveled to uh, Sweden or Denmark and we worked with SVT and uh, NRK and, and, and in Norway, we were able to go to meet refugee communities in those countries and do training for free uh, off the back of paid journalism training with newsrooms. Do you keep a list on how many countries you visited? I imagine you get to see so much of the world doing what you do, Yusuf. Yeah, we're really, really fortunate. Um, you know, I've got three passports as a British, uh, South African and Australian citizen, and, and there's lots of stamps in, in all of them. Um, what, what? How many are you up to now? Go on, tell me. I think we're, we're close to 100 countries um, and we've trained in 140 in total uh, in real life and remotely. It's been, yeah, it, I will say one thing. Travel was a, a blessing and a curse. During, before COVID, Samaya, my co-founder, and, and really the true brains behind our editorial at this organization as the editor-in-chief, we were traveling every day of our lives for over two years. We were living in the cloud, both physically and, and, and virtually. And we were unable to grow this organization. We we're unable to build systems. We we're unable to scale. We we're unable to put out enough meaningful content. You just can't when you're traveling at that speed. We're in a different country every day. Um, COVID hit, forced us to lock down in one location. And that was when we grew. We were really able to focus. We were really able to hire, train. So travel's amazing. But at the early stages of a media startup, there's also a lot of benefits being uh, anchored into one location just for a little while so you can set things up. Right. So the big learning that came out of COVID was what? We need to run very fast. I think the whole world has now realized that mobile journalism has gone mainstream. And we figured that out a couple of years ago and we need to run onto the next thing. And, and spoiler alert, that next thing is augmented reality. It's through your camera. In eight years time, you're gonna be wearing a camera on your face. You're gonna be wearing a computer on your face. And if you're not making those investments today, it's gonna to be a very, very difficult uh, curve for you to climb because this jump is bigger than any jump we've seen before. This is a fundamental shift. It, it, it's a sea change. It's going to disrupt new companies will emerge that will be ready for this metaverse-based uh, world of, of overlaying stories onto the physical world. And yeah, if you want to build a, a business, a media company today, 
you better be ready for that. Final question from me, Yusuf. We're talking on a podcast, and I loved what you said at the beginning that AR wearable technology allows us to find stories that we hadn't previously seen. The big issue with podcasting, I guess, is the discoverability problem. You know, trying to type something into a search bar, follow uh, a show on an app. You know, off the top of your head, how do you think podcasting could become more discoverable through the means of AR or wearable technology? Oh, it's the biggest thing ever. So audio has a very bright future, right? It, it's such a beautiful medium in terms of passive consumption, in terms of being able to navigate the world and still be able to consume content without uh, you know, having to look at a screen. When we reach a world over the next eight years where everybody's got a computer on their face, it actually means that everybody has continuously basically got headphones in. Um, that offers a world of opportunity to the podcasting and audio space. We expect those numbers to only get better and better as wearable devices basically mean you've got headphones in all the time. Um, couple that with artificial intelligence. Couple that with really smart computing that knows the kind of audio that you require and when you require it. Oh, you're on a run. I know the beats that you like. Oh, you're in the train. You need to be informed because you're heading to work. This is the audio I'm gonna play for you now. Oh, you're heading to the supermarket. I'm gonna give you a couple of recipes to try out. The future of audio is incredibly bright because the reality is while I'm obsessed with this wearable future and I believe that we're gonna have these AR glasses, I also don't wanna see no on my face. I don't wanna see uh, screens all the time but I certainly don't mind consuming audio a lot more. Um, so, I mean, that's why we're making um, big investments in the audio space too. Uh, over the next four weeks, we're launching our first four episodes of, of podcasts. Uh, you know, we're trying it out. We've got a, a great opportunity given that we have, you know, a thousand videos that we put out a year. We've got this massive amount of content, uh, these amazing interviews. We're creating this huge human experience library of people that have experienced all kinds of things around the world. Um, and I'm really excited to see how audiences respond to that in the audio space. Can you drop us a, a name to the new show podcast or not? <laughs> yeah, I can. Um, I mean, at the risk of, of it being swiped before we, we go with it. Um, at the moment, the idea that we're playing with is, well, if, if, if the visual content is, is seen, then I think the podcast has got to be heard. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's a great name for it. And a, th a thousand videos uh, a year is pretty insane. That's like three a day or something. So kudos. Oh, it's going to be so much more. I mean, especially as we move into this local, hyper-local space, and we, we start to launch various products in very local markets because we see this news desert, right? We see so many news publications around the world that have shut down. And, and often it was because they were old newspapers and they weren't able to transition to how people consume today, which is video, because it was expensive and they didn't have the skills. But We've got a system that enables low-cost, high-value videos. I think as we start to scale this out, we start to see, you know, each hyper-local town, city have its own scene video publication. We're going to be looking at thousands of shows a day over the next few years. Um, and, and we're still kind of figuring out how to do that. And, and if you know how, I'd love to hear from you. Well, I, th I think that's for you to teach me. Yusuf, I'm going to let you get back to the training. Thanks so much for today and jumping on the show. Uh, all the best, and we'll keep an eye on Seen and Heard. Thank you so much, Jacob. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. A big thanks to Yusuf for taking time out of his training out in Kazakhstan to talk to me. These are my top takeaways from our chat. Firstly, as our tech habits evolve, it's worth reconsidering how audiences discover us. Whether or not you buy it, whether or not you buy into the hype around wearable technology, its principles are still relevant. Is there a way to make your content fit more seamlessly with your audience's everyday life? 
Secondly, augmented reality appeals to both real-world culture and internet culture. It has brought us quirky face filters, that's true, but thinking about Yusuf's example of live overlays on statues, the potential to add value to the real world is there, and you can bet I'll continue to monitor this space, and I'd love to hear your two cents. You can DM or tweet me at jpdojournalism, or the wider team at journalism.co.uk at journalismnews. If you'd like to feature on the show or you've got a topic or story you want us to cover on the podcast, do get in touch. I'm on jacob at journalism.co.uk. And finally, if you like what you heard today, you can check out more of our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching and subscribing to the journalism.co.uk podcast. That way you won't miss our next exciting episode where we will bring you some of the highlights from our first post-pandemic in-person News Rewind conference happening next week on the 24th of May at News UK HQ. Of course, you can always just swing by the event and hear all of the talks yourself and reconnect with your peers. We'd love to see you there. It isn't too late to grab your ticket. Head on over to newsrewind.com if you don't want to miss out. But that's all we have time for this week. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>